George Foreman and Kenny Ellis or Jimmy Ellis and Ken Norton and Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran. Just boxers were uh, everywhere and boxing was, was popular. I remember one time seeing a television interview with a professional boxer, a young kind of upcoming boxer, who was being asked about the fundamentals of boxing. And the interviewer asked him, what are some mistakes that a boxer might make? And I've never forgotten the answer that he gave. The boxer replied, the two biggest mistakes that boxers make. Number one is telegraphing their punches. You know what that means? That means kind of giving away what you're going to do next, what punch you're going to throw, or what combination, or, or what area of the, the, the body or head that you were going to be uh, you know, aiming for. Telegraphing, letting your opponent know kind of what was coming next. And the second one, he said, is failing to keep their guard up, not protecting themselves, not keeping their, their hands in a, in a defensive position where they could protect themselves from the blows that their opponents would try to inflict on them. This morning, we're going to begin our summer Bible book study series in the book of Jude. And come on, of course, there was nothing else we could call it, right? But hey, Jude. If you've, ever, uh, if you've ever seen it, you might have missed it. It's near the back. It's right before Revelation. It comes after 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Then there's this little book, Jude. It's, the, it, there, it's one of the smallest books in the New Testament. Only 2nd and 3rd John are smaller. But it really, it's, it's, it's one chapter. But it really illustrates the truth that big things come in small packages. Because the truth is, 2,000 years after this book was written, it still packs a wallop for the believer. You see, the theme of the book of Jude is keeping your guard up. It, keeping your guard up. Jude wrote this book. It's actually a letter. He wrote it to a group of believers to help them recognize that they are, there are some people and some forces on this earth that will attempt to tear apart the church and attack the faith of believers. Those people are real. They really exist. And so there's, there's stuff in the book of Jude that we need to know, stuff that can strengthen us and, and empower us to stand against anyone or anything that might attack the church. Jude tackles head-on the issue of apostasy and apostates. Now, <clears throat> some people are looking at me like, do what? You're talking about the apostate Paul? No, that's the apostle Paul. The apost apostasy and apostate are different things. An apostate is a counterfeit Christian, if you will. It's, it's someone who professes to be saved, but doesn't possess salvation. And so the word apostasy literally means turning away or falling away. Paul had predicted that times would come when there would be apostates, there would be apostasy, there would be those who would attack the church, who would attempt to destroy the faith. And he wrote about it in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Your, the, your scriptures are all in your message notes handout if you want to take a look at those. You can follow along in your own Bible if you wish. They're up on the screen as well. 1 Timothy 4, 1 says, Now the, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, we've just 
finished talking about the end times. Paul says, in the last times of the last days, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. Paul says, expect it because it's coming. The Greek word translated turn away there is where we get our word apostasy. Our enemy is the devil. First of all, does everybody know that? Our enemy is not the guy that goes to the, our neighbor who goes to the other church in town, right? Our enemy is not the guy who doesn't go to church. Our enemy is the devil. And he's got two ways uh, that he attacks the church, two favorite ways that he loves to attack the church. First of all, he will do it by persecution. He will do it by persecution of the church, by creating dangerous, terrible environments that make it very hard for a person of faith. In fact, they can make it hazardous for a person of faith. We're seeing this right now in parts of the Middle East and in Africa, the continent of Africa, where Christians, people, men are going into villages and burning down churches and killing people for one reason, because they're Christians. Now that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about persecution, Okay. Persecution is not the clerk at Walmart doesn't say Merry Christmas and instead they say Happy Holidays. That's not persecution. We need to get over that stuff. The people that are really experiencing persecution would laugh in our faces. If some of the things that are trotted out, some of the things that come through my Facebook timeline that says, oh, this is persecution. No, it's not. Not unless somebody's marched you out of your house and burned it down and is getting ready to decapitate your wife and children in front of you because you're a Christian family. That's persecution. And then the other way, the other favorite tactic that Satan has is he will, he will do it. He will try to destroy the church by the perversion of the faith. Now, which of those two do you think puts our church, the American church, in more danger today? If you said the perversion of the faith, you're right. I'm going to share something with you. I, I, I went back and forth on this, but I'm going to share it. I read an article written by a man, and um, call me judgmental if you will. It, it doesn't particularly bother me. This man, I believe, is an apostate. He is the, he's the president of a Christian university, a school that has traditionally turned out hundreds, if not thousands, of men and women trained for ministry. Now, who he is, what his name is, and what the school is, doesn't matter, unless I happen to hear that some of you are going to send you know, your kids or grandkids to this school, and then you and I will have a conversation about that. But I, I'm going to protect the innocent as much as I possibly can here. But this man was writing an article about his understanding of Jesus and the Bible and the church. And in that article, things just popped out at me, marks of an apostate. Because one of the marks of an apostate is that they, they seem to speak for Jesus, but really they deny him. This man would tell you that he knows and loves Jesus, but listen to what he wrote. This is a direct quote like Israel, our first temptation is to make Jesus into an icon of devotion. We want to see God, touch God, clutch God, and make sure that God belongs to us. 
So we make Jesus into an object of worship. Let us not make Jesus into a magic fetish. Jesus is God speaking to us. Jesus is not God. Christians seem to become remarkably troubled about whether Jesus is humankind's only Savior. Is Jesus God's only word? The simple answer is, of course not. End quote. Now, I don't know how else you spin that. Let me tell you something else an apostate does. They, they, they seem to believe the Bible, but they deny its authority. Again, this Christian university president writes this in that article. The simple identification of the Word of God with the Bible is a mistake. The Bible is not an absolute authority. Oh my gosh, if it's not, where are we going to turn? Who do we turn to? And then another mark of an apostate is that they seem to stand for truth, but they deny its reality. When it comes right down to it, they will tell you there really is no such thing as objective, verifiable truth. That's what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and they may not match up. Again, another revealing quote from this article. The man said, The truth of the Christian faith, if there is any such thing, is that God is on our side. Well, finally, he includes a phrase that I agree with. I could go on. There's a lot more of that in the article, but, but here's what I want us to grasp. <laughs> These people are really are out there. These people are heading our Christian universities where we send people to go and be prepared for ministry. Hey, and guess what? These people stand in pulpits this morning and preach something... I don't know what. That's why Jude says, keep your guard up. Defend the faith. Stand up to these kind of imposters, posers, deceivers. We have to keep our guard up and defend the faith from those who would attack it. Now I'm going to tell you, I want you to read the book of Jude. Take you 15 minutes, maybe, top. When you read it, I'm going to tell you something. It'll shake you up a little bit. In fact, it's no coincidence that the book of Jude begins and ends talking about the security of our salvation. I think there's a reason for that. I think because what comes in between can rattle us if we're not careful. If we're not sure of and secure in our salvation, and if our faith is not strong and sturdy... Jude has the potential to fill us with doubt, to make us kind of scratch our heads and go, golly, am I an apostate? Well, the answer to that is no. And the reason I know that is because, again, Jude opens his book and closes his book talking about the security of our salvation. The first two verses, the last two verses of Jude are about eternal security. I think Jude was aware that people might read that and get the wrong idea. And so before he speaks prophetically, he speaks as a pastor. And he seeks to reassure us. Your salvation is safe and secure. You are secure in it. And in fact, he gives every true follower of Christ three reasons. We can be sure that our salvation is secure. They're right there in your notes if you want to write these down. Here's the first one. We're led by spiritual light. 
True followers of Jesus are led by spiritual light. Let's look at Jude verse 1. There's, no, there's only one chapter, so you don't really say Jude chapter 1 because there's no chapter 2. So just, it's just Jude verse 1. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father. Now pause right there for a moment. Let me tell you something. In the original Greek language, the word called is the very last word in the sentence because in those days when someone was writing in Greek uh, and they wanted to emphasize something, the Greek language said you put that at the very end. That that which is important, that which you want to draw attention to, that which you want to emphasize goes at the end of the sentence. Jude wants us to understand that everything he's going to say is true about us because of the calling of God in our lives. To be called in those days referred to being officially summoned to take on a duty, to fill an office, take a position. Uh, my, my dad was a, a major in the Alabama State Troopers preparing to retire, and the sheriff of his home county, where he'd been born and raised, uh, died in office, passed away. And the governor of the state of Alabama called my dad and called him to become sheriff, to fill out the rest of that term for that man. That's what's being spoken of here. It's a calling to an official position or to assume a duty. And, and what Jude wants us to understand here is that our salvation begins with the call of God. It begins with the call of God. Listen, salvation doesn't begin with us. Honestly, truthfully, salvation doesn't have a whole lot to do with us. It doesn't begin with the sinner. It begins with the Savior. And I'm glad it does. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I'm confident that what God started in you He's going to finish. You know what? If I started my salvation, I wouldn't have finished it. But when God starts something, he finishes it. And salvation always starts with the call of God. Now, somebody's thinking, well, pastor, you've told us so many times that the Bible says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's absolutely true. But listen, before any of us ever call on the name of the Lord, He calls us first. God calls us before we're even capable of calling on Him. Think about it this way. Let's say we had a telephone right here that maybe it was a payphone. Remember a payphone? It's like a little glass box that you stepped into and there was a landline in there. You could put a, when I was a kid, you could put a dime in. Then they were a quarter. Then they took credit cards. Okay, we've got a phone booth here, a phone here that can call heaven. And God's got a phone there that can call earth. Well, let me tell you how it is. That phone would, would never ring unless God picked up his phone and called us first. What I want to make sure that we see is that Salvation does not begin with us calling on God or calling out to God. It begins with God calling on us. I heard an old preacher one time 
explained the call of God like this. He said, the Lord is always voting for a man, and the devil is always voting against him. Then man himself votes and breaks the tie. Well, that sounds good, but it ain't so. (laughs) Because if it was left up to us to vote, we would always vote for the devil and against God. Somebody says, how dare you, sir? Hey, you would vote for the devil. So would I. Every time. The good news is, if we have voted for God, it's because he voted for us first. John, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because why? Because he first loved us. John would later say, this is not love that we loved him but he loved us. We love because he first loved us. Salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. It's not my work. It's not your work. It's not anybody's work. It's God's work. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. What about faith? Doesn't faith come from us? Yes, it does. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that we keep our eyes on Jesus, the champion, who what? Initiates and perfects our faith. Your translation might say, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who starts it. He's the one who finishes it. Nobody said it better than the Apostle Paul when he said this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God, what? Chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Holy Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He, what? Called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Maybe you've heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He He lived two centuries ago. He was the British Prince of Preachers. When he was 22 years old, he preached regularly to crowds of 10,000 people or more. He published some 15,000 sermons over his lifetime. They sold them. His Sunday morning sermons would be printed up and sold on the streets for a penny a page uh, all during his lifetime. He wrote these words. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly... I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. Then the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence on my mind to make me seek him. I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith and so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. We can be sure of our salvation because we're led by spiritual light. And then we're guided by supreme love. We are guided by supreme love. The next phrase in Jude 1, he says which we've already read, I'm writing to all who have been called 
by God the Father who loves you. By God the Father who loves you. And let me tell you this, folks. We're not just loved. We are God's beloved. I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, God loves you. But then again, he loves everybody. And that's true-ish. But there's a difference. There's a difference, right, between being loved and being beloved. Right? The sinner is loved by God. But saints, you and I are God's beloved. I mean, speaking generally... I love all the women in this church, but there is only one woman who is my beloved. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are beloved by God. And there's something else here. It's harder to see, but it, it, it's in the grammar. The verb, is, that verb is in the perfect tense. That's the strongest tense in the Greek language. What it, it, what it means, what it indicates, is something that began in the past, is continuing in the present, and will continue into an infinite future. That's what the perfect Greek tense means. If we want to get technical about it, that means we would translate this like this. We have been beloved by God in the past. We are beloved by God in the present. And we will always be beloved by God into the future. Now everybody's heard that, right? That's the reason that you're not jumping up and down and screaming and throwing babies into the air. Because everybody's heard God loves you. It bounces off of us. I don't know why, but it does. I think it's because we, we think of God's love in terms of our human love, which we know waxes and wanes, comes and goes. It's stronger sometimes than other times. Right? We talk about falling in love. We fell in love. You know what I hear when I hear somebody say, we fell in love? I, I hear them say, we stepped in a hole. We're on TV, so... But God's love is different from our love. God's love is so different from our love. God's love is immeasurable. Jesus himself told us how much God loves us. And if Jesus was not the one that said it, we wouldn't have believed it. Jesus says this. It's in John 17, verse 23. He was actually praying to the Father when he said this. He said, I am in them, my followers. And God, you are in me. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Did you see it? Did you see it? How much does God love us? He loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Do you see it? How could you ever measure that kind of love. How much does God love Jesus? Hey, however much that is, He loves us as much as He loves Jesus. Man, I, I wish I could get that through to you. I, I, I wish that we would really embrace that. I wish that we wouldn't push off against that. Or that we wouldn't say, well, I know He loves all of those people, but me? 
He's crazy about you. I heard about a, a widow who had three sons. And she passed away. And after the funeral, the funeral director gave each son individually an envelope with the instructions that they were only to open the envelope when they were by themselves, open it in private. And when the sons opened the envelopes, each one read this message. Son, I love you the most. That's what God says to us. Every one of us individually, I love you the most. And he means it. And it's true. God loves, 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 loves you. And his love never changes. It never changes. There's nothing we can ever do to change God's love for us. You know, and people get the wrong idea about that. People say, well, you're just saying we can go off and do anything we want to do. Are you telling me that the pure, undiluted, 200-proof love of God makes you want to go get into sin? I don't think so. If, if it does, please don't move next door to me. Right? Stay out of my neighborhood. I heard about an old guy one time who was always bragging about how he loved kids. He just, anybody that would listen, he went on and on about how special he thought children were and how much he loved them. Well, one Saturday, he worked all day pouring a new concrete driveway. And when he went in the house to, to let it kind of settle, and uh, the, the little kids in the neighborhood got into it. And I mean, they just walked all through it, and they wrote their initials in it, and, and they left some of their toys in it. And then it hardened that way. And when the man came back out of the house and saw the driveway, he just blew up. I mean, he went ballistic. And he, he screamed at those kids and he ran them off his property, told them never to come back again, just very hateful, very mean. And one of the neighbors was observing this and he was like, hey, hey, whoa, whoa. I thought you loved children. And the old man said, well, I, I love them in the abstract, but I don't love them in the concrete. Listen, God loves us either way. Either way. I so want us to understand that nothing bad we could ever do would make God love us less. And nothing good we could ever do will make Him love us more. His love is unchangeable. And it's eternal. It's for always. Human love is not for always. Let's just be honest. God's love is forever. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, he said, tell my people this. It's in Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. You know what everlasting means? Lasting ever. Lasting forever. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. And then again, the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is revealed in Christ Jesus. Underline this, nothing in all creation. Raise your hand if you're part of God's creation. Some of you don't raise your hand, I'm not too sure about you. We're all part of God's creation. Okay? Nothing in all creation, that includes you, can separate us from God's love. We can be sure our salvation is secure because we're led by spiritual light. We're guided by supreme love. And the last point that Jude makes for us is we're protected by a saving life. The very last phrase in Jude 1. He says, I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus. Keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. One of Jude's favorite words, apparently, is this word that's translated keep here. It's seven times in this little book he uses a form of this word. It means to carefully watch. It means to strongly guard. It's the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, when we're told that we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept for you in heaven pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Folks, when God makes a reservation for us in heaven, no one can change it. No one can cancel it. No one can delete it. When we get on the ship of grace, we may fall on the ship, but we won't fall off the ship. If we stumble over the rock of temptation, Jesus is there to lift us up. If we stumble and fall into the pit of sin, Jesus will lift us out. And this is a shock for some of us to hear because we haven't heard it. We didn't grow up in a, in, a, in a spiritual tradition or a church tradition that taught this. But the truth is, if we lost our salvation, it wouldn't be our fault. It would be Jesus' fault because he's the one that's in charge of it. It's his saving life that justifies us and sanctifies us and will one day glorify. 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul said, I am suffering here in prison, but I'm not ashamed of it. For I know the one in whom I trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Now, don't hear what I didn't say. Again, Jude's not telling us that we can live any old way. That's going to be very clear as we move through this book. We get out of these first couple of verses and get into the, 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 to the meat of it. That's going to become very clear. What he's telling us is we can have assurance of salvation. Not insurance. <laughs> assurance. The Lord doesn't give us an insurance policy to replace our salvation in case we lose it. He gives us the assurance that we will never lose it to begin with. If you're thinking of taking that assurance and going out and committing sin, you're not thinking right. You haven't understood it yet. I don't see how the grace of God active and operating in our lives can lead us anywhere but into deeper obedience and devotion to Him. Are we going to stumble sometimes? Yes, but we don't, we don't do it on purpose because we think we can come back and wipe our feet on His grace. 
That's, you know, people say, well, you preach grace, that's just giving people a license to sin. I said, okay, well, people who teach uh, electricity, are they giving people a license to go get electrocuted? No. Our salvation begins with God calling us and it ends with God keeping us. Again, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. And folks, he's faithful when we are faithless. When we are unfaithful, God is faithful. Finally, in verse 2, Jude adds this. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. I wonder why he picked those particular ones. Why do you pick those particular blessings? Mercy and peace and love. Well, if you think about it, mercy is what characterizes our relationship with God. Peace is what we can have in relationship to ourselves. Love is what we can have with the people around us. So that means that when we sin, God gives more and more and more and more mercy. It's inexhaustible. That means that when we're sad or uneasy, angry, frustrated, He gives us more and more and more and more peace. When we struggle with people around us, He gives us more and more and more and more love. What else do we need? What more do we want? You've heard of Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, he's an actor who's had a 50-year career in Hollywood. He's an Academy Award winner. He's been in movies like American Graffiti and Jaws and uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Stand By Me. Uh, I don't know. Mr. Holland's Opus. He was interviewed a couple years ago by Barbara Walters. And near the end of the interview, she asked him one of her typical Baba Wawa questions. She said, Richard, if you could have one wish, what would that wish be? And he thought about it for a moment and he said, if I could only have one wish, I would wish for inner security. Now think about that. You see, what that tells me is that well-known, highly paid, respected movie stars are not any different than you and me. Because I think ultimately what everybody wants is security. Some firm ground, a rock to stand on. And know that it's not going to move, it's not going to wash out, it's not going to crumble beneath our feet. And I'm going to tell you this. As far as I know, there's only one place we can find that. 
Security comes when we realize that Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins and that once we put our faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior, we can be absolutely sure that we are completely secure. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.